0: hello and welcome to the literature podcast a novel review my name is Seamus your host and together we will discuss dissect and explore the wonderful world of literature and the wonderful world of literature is a vast and dense jungle so let's start making our way through one book at a time Hello, good day, and welcome to the beginning of another episode of A Novel Review, a podcast exploring the wonderful world of literature. My name is Seamus, and I am your host, and for today's episode, The Decay of Morality in America. That's <laughs> that's a very vague description, I understand, because, I mean, there are so many books that could sort of encompass that. But today, it's Joan Didion's Play It As It Lays. But before I descend into this novel, I always take a moment to reflect on any mantelpiece moments, something to highlight from the week past, and today, a bit of a historical one. I was recently visiting a place called West Mersey, which is on the east coast of uh, the United Kingdom, England, I guess, to be a bit more specific. And there was a beacon and like... I, of course, know Beacons were used historically, and probably my my earliest memory of Beacons is, of course, the Beacons of Gondor are lit. Uh, Gondor calls for aid. Lord of the Rings fans will understand that. But it's it, I, I think there's something fun about seeing it in person and understanding that this was actually used in history so this particular be- beacon system dates back to the 15th century during the reign of Edward IV and you know beacons were used as a more effective way for military call to arms to be raised than a messenger because they could travel a lot faster than someone could run especially with the lack of roads throughout throughout you know the, the countryside at the time so you know it 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 is a wonderful thing and it was it's this cool kind of thing that I guess you don't actively travel to see the beacon system, but it's one of those things that you see and you're like, oh, that's been there since the 15th century, Or oh, this this same sort of beacon placement. I think it's a bit more modern now. I think they're all in metal, whereas back in the day it was probably, as in Lord of the Rings, just piles of wood kind of thing. But it's this kind of thing that you, you get to be observing, and it's a continuous sort of system that's been, I mean, of course, less used these days. I think last time it was lit was um, the late Queen Elizabeth's. I think it was her Diamond Jubilee, something like that, that they lit them all across the country. So it's it's one of those fun things to look out for if you're in Britain or maybe your country has one. Let me know. It's a, like I said, it's a fun thing to sort of be aware of, not necessarily, you know, doing a day trip for, but just something to be aware of. Now, just a bit of quick housekeeping as well before I dive into Joan Didion's novel. Uh, I have a website for this pod, and every week when the episode is released, I sort of have this script that I've worked off, and I I was going to do nothing with them, and I was going to move to a more sort of dot point version of a script, but I I suddenly thought there might actually be some value in these basically word-for-word scripts. I mean, sometimes I go off on tangents, which I just don't catch in the script, but I thought, I mean, first I thought the idea of posting a script would suck. It, it it just wouldn't hold any value. But then I considered who could actually benefit from the upload. And I, I had the thought that if you're visually impaired, you know, if you're visually impaired, you can listen to audiobooks. If you're hearing impaired, you can read audio, uh, you can read books. The same concept applies for podcasts, except that there isn't a reading podcast that I'm aware of, at least until perhaps now. So please, if you know someone who has a hearing disability, Let them know that they can enjoy the scripts. I'll upload them weekly with the episodes to the website. The website's link is in the episode description. Uh, So yeah, you know, they're probably riddled with grammatical mistakes, but hopefully still readable. Okay, now on with the show. Joan Didion's 1970 novel, Play It As It Lays. Now, I read this book twice because I had no background information on it, and so I didn't know what to actually expect when I went in. The first read, perhaps this is going to sound a bit weird, a weird way to describe it. But you know in the movies, and I'm saying the movies without a specific movie in mind, but in the movies when someone takes a lot of drugs and then they sink into the couch, their head sort of falls back to the sky in a in this numbing wonder, and then what ensues is like a kaleidoscopic montage of scenes that string together a somewhat coherent view or story. Well, that's that's it. That's that's what I thought upon first read. An absolute chaos of flashes, which was kind of fun, but I, but I decided to go back and read it a second time, and while it made a lot clearer sense, I still feel there is this wonderful depth that I haven't even scratched yet. I think now's probably a great time to do a little overview so we can be all aware of the basic storyline and structure of the novel. The story opens with a few scattered chapters talking about Mariah's madness and the state she is in, and these chapters are the prologue to the novel. From there, it becomes a miasma following Mariah White at the age of 31. She has a fading relevance as a model and an actress and with an impending divorce from her director husband Carter. And that basically sums up the story as we follow Mariah wondering what is the point of it all. So the story is incredibly short. It's 84 chapters, which which sounds like a lot, but each are quite solitary on their own. They're kind of like episodes of some American sitcom, something like uh, like How I Met Your Mother. Each episode is more or less watchable on its own, and yet there are often these small and subtle threads that contribute to the overarching, non-linear world-building that is going on in the background. Tight is a word I want to use, but I don't think it's right because the story is also so incredibly nebulous. So I guess it's tight in what it's doing, but nebulous in how it does it, if that kind of makes sense. It's as if you have to read the novel and pull the threads of meaning from between the lines, which I understand can be quite annoying for some readers. Some people just want to be told a story because they don't come to literature for a puzzle. And this one is a particularly interesting puzzle because I think it can be read on so many different levels. You could read it as just a surface level passing story you could read it as an alcohol-fuelled miasma of chaos, like me, or a really complex commentary on women's position in the 1960s, particularly in Hollywood. And it's women's position in this that make the story so interesting, because while Mariah is the central woman, there seems to be this ever-present character always to the side, and that is women. Even Mariah's daughter plays a constant role of anxious concern throughout the novel, and yet is largely absent, if not always absent from the actual story. She is just described. There are a great many scenes that feature women, that discuss women, in front of women, and yet it's completely absent of them. I have this little passage from the novel to convey this. And from the offset, I apologise for my terrible sort of voice differentiation acting that will... There's three characters in this scene, so I'll I'll definitely try my best to separate them. How's Carter? Someone said behind her, and when she turned, she saw that it was Larry Kulik. Carter's on location, she said, but Larry Kulik was no longer listening. He was watching a very young girl in a white halter dress dancing on the terrace. I'd like to get into that, he said, contemplatively to BZ. I wouldn't call it the impossible dream, BZ said. Mariah twisted the napkin around her glass. She had already smiled too long and she did not want to look any more at Larry Kulik's careful manicure and expensively tailored suit, and she did not want to consider why Larry Kulik was talking to BZ about the girl in the white dress. Not that many guys, Larry Kulik was saying. Not just anybody. Shit no, you have to be able to get her into the whiskey. Larry Kulik was still watching the girl. Only six guys. How do you know six? Larry Kulik shrugged. I had her researched. Six. He patted Mariah's arm absently. How's it going, baby? How's Carter? So once again, apologies for the shit acting, but first thoughts, keep your kids away from Larry Kulik. He seems to embody the idea of male dominance and the power as some form of right. BZ Himself is a complex character. I have another quote with him shortly, so let's put him to the side. And of course, Mariah, present and yet to the side, replaced by an unnamed woman that is also the object of men's desires, their attention, but not their respect. And then, of course, to discuss all this absently after ignoring Mariah, just brings it all together. And so we get a picture of what it's like for a woman in what could be called a man's world. When Mariah does talk, she is often contradicted. She tells Carter that maybe they should give their marriage another try, and he says she doesn't act like it. When she tells her agent that maybe she wants to work, he tells her she doesn't. And so this main character of Mariah becomes an almost extra to her own story. And that's where her feelings of alienation stem from. Carter is often absent, away on location filming. All the while, Mariah is estranged from her disabled daughter who is institutionalised, but I didn't find it all initially doom and gloom. While the truth of society seems wrapped up in the perversion of it all, there were sharp moments when characters broke, in a sense, and emoted some form of humanity. I'll now read you chapter 8, which might sound a bit absurd to read an entire chapter but I promise you it's incredibly short. You haven't asked me how it went after we left Anita's, BZ said. How did it go? Mariah said without interest. Everybody got what he came for. "'Don't you ever get tired of doing favours for people?' There was a long silence. "'You don't know how tired,' BZ said." Now, as you can see with this chapter, some are incredibly short, and something that adds more distance and alienation to the text is that the story always continues on the next page, really bringing to attention that each chapter is singular, and because of this there is also a large space left between each chapter with just blank white paper, leaving you to fill with whatever meaning you want. But this particular chapter is a really important chapter because throughout the book, Mariah is treated quite poorly by a lot of people. In fact, nearly everyone. Anyone that's nice to her, you can always trace back to threads of ulterior motives. But this chapter is a little, a little different. Now, Beazie is no saint. He's not my favorite character, as evidenced through that earlier chapter. Although, I mean, to, to also be fair, I don't think I have a favorite character in this book. But it's an important chapter because it reaffirms the idea of this man's world through his use of he. Everybody got what he came for. So, everyone important is a he, but also because it pulls the veil down for just a moment, just long enough for us to spy the truth. Mariah is passed along by everyone who mistreats her as crazy in some way. But of course, the ones that are called crazy are often the ones that are the most sane. And this comes out as BZ also confirms the charade of the morally abusive and decadent society that they are living in. This next part that I'm going to talk about is a decent sized spoiler, so tune out for a little bit if you do need to. But Mariah's almost nihilistic stoicism reaches a fever pitch when she accepts her role as a side character to the suicide of BZ. It's a very dark scene in which Mariah is consciously aware of what is happening, however does nothing to change or help the situation. The whole novel is slowly building to an act of this sort, exactly capitalising upon the idea of a woman's side role in society. To sum it up, the story is incredibly bleak, nihilistic, and depressing to the idea of meaningless existence, a stark contrast to the glitz and glamour of fame and fortune. Or as this passage started by Maria puts it, One thing in my defence, not that it matters, I know something Carter never knew, or Helene, or maybe you, I know what nothing means and keep on playing. Why, BZ would say. Why not, I say. So that was Joan Didion's Play It As It Lays. Now, what would I rate this out of 5? I mean, I have to give it a 4 out of 5 because I believe any book that deserves to be read twice is worth at least a 4 and I've already read it twice so it, it's an easy 4 for me. I do want to say though it might not be some people might disagree with that. They might have read this and hated it. They might have read it and thought nothing of it or read it quite absently as the, as the story goes. But I enjoyed it, so play it as it lays. So, what am I reading this week? This week I'm reading my Paris Review Spring 2023 issue, uh, which is a magazine I've subscribed to for a few years now because um, I think it's good to read contemporary authors, basically, because that's the literary world I exist in, I guess. And it's important to read them because the classics of tomorrow will be decided by the readers of today. But in so, so, yeah, what I was actually reading within the magazine was this fantastic interview of Rita Dove and she discusses her initial fear of poetry which, which I guess resonated with me because poetry can be incredibly difficult to, to dive into and she had this line I realised that figuring out how to talk about poetry was, in some ways, similar to thinking in another language With practice it was something I could master but ultimately, true understanding of a poem happened on a level beyond words It was untranslatable and I love that line. I think it's just such a wonderful way to think of poetry as this kind of language that has to be learned. And so that was, you know, a very nice idea, very affirming idea to someone that sort of struggles with poetry occasionally. So that was a beautiful little afternoon read of what I was reading this week. Now, before I close out the show, if you have listened this far, please consider hitting those five stars. I would really appreciate it, of course. Also, feel free to head along to the website, as I mentioned earlier, and support the pod. And always, of course, thank you for your attention. And to finish the show, a quote from Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey. There is nothing I would not do for those who are really my friends. I have no notion of loving people by halves. It is not my nature.